Welcome to Be Simply This Is She, and I want to thank you for being here today. We have special guest, Jayesh Parekh. He is going to share his new book, What Shall We Do With All This Money? He's going to share his wisdom, uh, part of his personal journey, and the value of compassion. Without further ado, let's dive in with Jayesh. Jayesh, I'm really thankful for you being here today. Uh, this is an exciting time to celebrate your great work and your new book that's coming out that's entitled, What Shall We Do With All This Money? What I'd like to do is ask you, I guess, a two-part question. One, seed inspiration came from your country, India, and really connecting to that region of the world in with the topic of wealth. I'd love for you to share with the listeners as to how you came to want to really explore this topic. Thank you so much, Suzanne, for having me on your radio show. I actually started thinking about this topic, what shall we do with all this money? And I wanted to interview and talk to people from all different diasporas worldwide. But that, that became such a daunting task, uh, you know, traveling and running and trying to find people and curating from all over the world. And so I quickly uh, decided to focus on the Indian diaspora. But instead of doing those conversations only with Indians in India, which is a limited view, I decided to open it up to Indians worldwide. So there are discussions with people from India, but also Malaysia, Singapore, UK, Dubai, which is UAE, Bahrain, United States, and so these are people who are of Indian origin, but they are in many cases citizens of those countries and therefore there is a varied uh, thought processes about wealth. My thesis when I got started, uh, the thing that inspired me was that people work very hard to make money. And then they go on to work very hard to make money on their money and then they die. It's just that piece which is working very hard to make money on their money really became my focus to see, you know, can we have that discussion with all these wealthy, affluent people all over the world saying, why don't you, you know, back up a little bit and, and see if you can, you know, take your foot off the gas pedal and smell the roses. So that was like one idea. But the more important idea, Suzanne, is that there are millennials uh, who will be inheriting tens and hundreds of billions of dollars all over the world. And some of these millennials are clueless what they're going to do with the money. And so that is my number one inspiration, focus, and attention is on millennials. And so there is a section on millennials that I've discussed this topic with a few millennials worldwide. But really, all these 50 interviews uh, I asked that question of the interviewee, and I think there are some interest, interesting perspectives uh, that hopefully you'll find. Beautiful. Can you share through the process how your perspective might have shifted a little? Suzanne, what happened is that, as I mentioned earlier, I was uh, going originally with a sense of a slight upper hand, aggressive posture that I know better let me 
unveil this making money on money part. That's how I went into the book. Somewhere along the line, uh, two things happened. One is I did a hypnosis and regression session, and during that hypnosis session, I got some guardian angels and I got some feedback subtly, subconsciously. That when I came out of the hypnosis session, the first thing that I thought of was compassion, and mm. I scrapped everything that I had written, and I started again with a feeling of compassion for everyone. And so then, from that point on, now this book is really a humbling uh, experience for me uh, to to talk to these affluent people, and many of them they just enjoy making money, and and and. You know, I'm okay with it now. I was not, you know, originally I was very judgmental about it, uh, kind of pointing finger. But now, after having met them, seen them, talked to them, you know, uh, I'm okay with all of them, all of the above. And so it, it was really a humbling experience for me to get so many, so many different varied point of views, and uh, to each his own, as we say. So, so yeah, so. It's it's been fascinating. I love that you you circled around to compassion. If you can share a little bit with the listeners about how you've had pretty much a full spectrum life. You started out in India and then came to the United States and then back to Singapore and India, right? And if you can share a little bit about those different worlds that you traversed and okay. where you kind of reside in the you know when we talk about the word wealth for me that means so many things but if you can share a little bit how that process uh, has shaped you and uh, maybe brought you to greater levels of compassion that you might have not had if you had all these experiences yes okay so i'll just take a couple of minutes and give you my life journey and i'll i'll, I'll then insert some comments about how perspectives changed was born in a very humble uh, family in in Kolkata, in India, and I went through high school and then went to Electrical Engineering College uh, on west uh, coast of India. Uh, after which I joined uh, an MBA school in India because I didn't have money to go overseas, and so I joined the Indian Institute of Management in Calcutta, which is called IIMC. It's one of the more famous MBA schools. Uh, and then two trimesters into it, my brother Nilesh he sent me a ticket. Uh, to go to U.S. and so I dropped out of IIM and went to Austin and subsequently ended up graduating with an MS in E from University of Texas at Austin. I had to borrow my tuition fee, so that's where I was, right? And so I had to borrow tuition money, which I did not have, and then paid it back, you know, during my school years. Uh, after graduating, then I worked for a little bit at the university and then went to work for IBM in Houston. But I went to work for IBM in Houston. That's the first time that I started seeing some money, and 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 in between, uh, I got married as well. So Mona and me, Mona and I both then started, uh, you know, flexing that a little bit from the money that was starting to come in. And we bought a house and and did all the normal American things, uh, two cars and a house in Houston. And then subsequently, uh, IBM uh, somewhere out there found me as one of the candidates to go to Singapore. Because there was no IBM in India, and so they, there were four teams, and I was one one of the four teams that restarted IBM in India from Singapore. So as an expatriate, I moved to Singapore, and 
then subsequently went on to IBM went on to establish uh, their positions, their, their offices in India. At which point, uh, Mohan and I decided that we didn't want to live in India, but we need, didn't want to live in the United States either. And so I quit IBM after 12 and a half years, and I did nine startups after that. And mm. that was another inflection point because uh, I was living as an expat with two kids. We were living with two kids in Singapore, which is quite an expensive place. And so we pulled them out of uh, the American school and put them in local schools, which are much more inexpensive. And and we went through that shift. Uh, and and subsequently, when one of my startups, which is Sony Entertainment Television, was a jackpot uh, exit, then you know we brought the kids back into normal mainstream. And my daughter went to USC Cinema School. And Jason went, Jason went to Curry College in, in Boston, uh, and both are now graduates and, and working. So our, our lifestyle subsequently changed, but thanks to uh, back then what, is called, what was called Charity Focus, Nipun Mehta, and Service Space is what it's called now, uh, I got influenced by that, that entire community where I announced that instead of 80% of my time on commercial and 20% on service and spiritualism, I was going to shift it uh, to 80% of my life in, in service and spiritualism and 20% in commercial. I'm happy to say that now fast forwarding, I probably spend 90% of my time on service and spiritualism and 10% on just uh, looking after my money, which is a small piece, but also being on investment committees of some funds. And, and so that's how now I've progressed. And so that's my perspective. My personal own perspective on money also has shifted over time. I'd love for you to share that uh, transition, that bridge from uh, business world to welcoming and in, being involved in service, like doing that flip, and what, what you noticed during that time, because those are different constructs. I, I remember because I met you through Nipun, and just one of the stories he shared even about his mother is that they, you know, host this large meditation, which you, we went to together and you've been to probably many times over at their home and everyone comes and meditates and eats. And sometimes during that process of being of service to others, you get your feathers ruffled a little bit because maybe someone's not being as gra- grateful or, I don't know, the way you think they should be. And Nupun had shared a... a story about his mom having you know sometimes a little resistance to some of the guests because of how much work she put in and how she worked through that uh, to see it from their side really that compassion circle if you could share a little bit if you had any of those moments where you had to kind of adjust your lens so that you could truly step authentically into service with others yes of course I think uh uh, my father uh, was always a good influence on me growing up, and especially towards the end of that commercial career of mine, uh, because he himself had uh, retired at the age of 50. And so that was sort of the first uh, hint that I had that, hey, you know, there is more to life than just commercial and economics. Uh, the second was a person like Nipun, who's a full-time volunteer, right? So if somebody can do it 100% of their time, my sense was, hey, I can at least do 80%. And I have some responsibility with my family and some of the businesses and the venture funds. And so to that extent, I had to sort of hang in there. That's, that's 10 or 
but that in fact inflection point to switch from 80% commerce to 80% uh, service uh, results in a complete inner transformation because then you find something what I call time affluence. That time affluence is that you're not just running around in your daily routine from 7 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night uh, and, and, and constantly on, on digital technology you're, you're replying to emails and constantly you know, messaging and, and uh, trying to catch up. And this is a continuous partial attention that we all live in. And, and I think the, when I transitioned into the service space, uh, the attitude was completely different. You know, there was not that whole concept of competition. There was no concept of one-upmanship. One the camaraderie, the bonding, the compassion, the enthusiasm was just so different, which is let's help each other to make this world a better place. And that resonated with me completely. And so the more I went into it, as Nipun says, it's regenerative and, and it was completely correct. It was, it was so regenerative, regenerating that, you know, if you just write checks, it's fine. You know, we need everybody to write checks for a good cause. But beyond that, when you give yourself into that system, it really first transforms you yourself. And, and then the others around you and, and, and the community that you're trying to serve. And I truly, thoroughly enjoyed you know, that process. Uh, when I ended up in Singapore, I realized that Singapore is a very affluent place and didn't need that much of my help. I focused on India, so I traveled to India frequently. And now I'm uh, helping an organization in a low-income state called Bihar. And I'm on mm. the advisory board of Jyoti Eye Hospital, uh, which does 65,000 cataract operations every year, 80% of them for free. And then they also have a football to eyeball program where they bring in girls. It's a very patriarchal society. And so how to instill gender equ equity and that gender equality they bring in from bringing these girls out of their houses and helping them bring them into playing soccer. And once they play soccer, they start looking at the optometry and ophthalmology courses in the hospital and they enroll in that three or four year program. There is a filtering process. They graduate and then they start making more money per month than their entire family. And so the power shifts from the patriarch to this girl who's now bringing in a lot more money and she has to sign a piece of paper if any old person is going to get a cataract operation done. So in the whole village community, that shifts. Now, when I go through experience like this, and I go personally to Maspichak, which is where the hospital is, it's in the hinterlands of Bihar, uh, then there's a tremendous shift because it's no longer theoretical. It's not just you read books and attend you know, conference calls and meetings. But when you physically go to serve in these places, it just shifts something inside you and then again it becomes regenerative and, and you just want to do more of that. And so that's really uh, my life journey as to how I am where I am right now. Mm, beautiful. And can you share, you know, throughout India, there are some communities that aren't by economic standards wealthy but have a very high uh, per capita level of happiness. And if you can share with the listeners about what you think 
the correlation or the recipe is or formula is in those locations that enables that community to generate such joy, happiness, um, kind of freedom within their circumstance. Yes. So usually what happens is that there is this incredible high amount of wealth uh, in, in, in India, which is in pockets, and then there is degenerative poverty at the lower end. Those two ends, if you take out, the rest of India, which is lower middle class, middle class and upper middle class, the lower middle class is happy because they are not degeneratively poor and they have food and they have cubbyhole shelters, but they are not obviously living in good condominiums or apartments. But the one thing that is that the aspirations of those people is that we want to educate our kids. We want to give health care to our families. Uh, these are not people who are competitive that says, you know what, I have $10 million and they're stressed and unhappy because their neighbor has $20 million and they're mm. working their butts off trying to get to that $20 million and the $20 million is working to get to $30 million and incredibly stressed. And whenever there is money and abundance of money, I've seen that the relationship dynamics in families, extended families, uh, shifts a little bit. Right? People start envying a cousin or they look up to a brother or a cousin who's, got, who's very wealthy uh, and not necessarily smarter than the other guy who's got less wealth. And so that shift happens because of excessive wealth. Whereas the people who are commoners, as we say, you know, lower middle class and middle class folks, their value system is dramatically different. And the happiness quotient is totally different. Now, I'm not saying everything hunky-dory if you're a lower middle class person. No, they also have aspirations that one day they want to buy a scooter or a motorbike right, or some vehicle. They do have aspirations that, you know, they want to send their kids to a slightly better college or they want to shift from a hinterland village to a town. And some guys who live in town want to shift to cities. All those aspirations are there. But I sense that there is more experiential uh, aspirations as against material aspirations. And that's really the difference that I have seen, uh, especially in a country like India, which has got just such varied different sets of wealth. Being that you uh, interviewed millennials in this book, and I know that you like to experience life, uh, and then I imagine of everyone I was looking at, all the different people you interviewed, uh, there's people there that like material things. Sometimes when p people get, uh, it doesn't even matter, they could be the teenage kid that wants the new technology or someone that's amassed a lot of wealth and wants certain things. From your perspective, can you share, because millennials typically want to experience, can you share how experience to you feeds your heart and how it expounds beyond even the monetary exchange maybe you have to apply to it to make it happen. So let me first talk about the millennials uh, you know, that I interviewed. I think intuitively all of us feel that the kids of affluent parents, uh, they're all brats. Right? That's the general thesis, <laughs> right? That these guys are going to while away their time and money and you know, they're going to while away, you know, their precious uh, life. I was just incredibly surprised to find that while millennials may not know exactly what they want to do, some of them do know what they want to do, but many of them don't know what they want to do. But one common thread that I found was that they don't 
care as much about money as the baby boomer cared and they are today after graduating looking for purpose so if the purpose is lacking then their why just goes out of whack right why do you want to work for someone like this or why do you want to start a social enterprise of a certain type that why sort of is is something that the millennials are asking now which when i was growing up so that probably when you were growing up you know we were looking for a paycheck most likely when we graduated from college and now these people are saying no it's not good enough you know why should i work for apple versus dropbox and then they went to go through the purpose now beyond that is the social enterprise more and more and more millennials want to either work for a social enterprise or want to start their own social enterprise and social enterprise as you know is defined where it's a for profit organization doing good so whether it's in healthcare or health tech or education or edutech or agrotech etc so there's a vast variety of social enterprises now and i think that's really what hit me as well so as i was going through my own journey i realized that you know this this social entrepreneurship and social impact investing you know is really uh, gaining a lot of ground and the millennials are probably going to go down that path as against just you know investing in in just normal equities and bonds uh, they will most likely uh, invest in socially responsible investing as we call it and impact investing as we call it so yeah that's the shift that i'm watching i'm seeing and and they're looking for more experiential things to do rather than just material thing people don't want to buy cars they want to take uber people don't want to go you know buy vacation homes they want to use airbnb so it's becoming asset light in a sense and 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 that's what i see not only in india but also all over the world hmm and for you how do you parlay your your love for experience in even you know because i know you like to experience things right uh so you you kind of can understand their their plight it's almost like you're you're a grown up millennial <laughs> in some regard. Yes, of course, right? there's a kid inside me which uh <laughs> which always jumps out but yes okay so in my personal situation also uh you see what happens is that you have to answer that question how much is enough and people either become greedy or competitive or too ambitious on one side but on the other side you have to get rid of that insecurity and the insecurity stems from how long are you going to live because if you're going to live up to 100 then you need a different amount of money versus if you're going to live up to 80 and so that whole conversation about how much is enough is really the first thing that people grapple with and i kind of got over it a long time ago and my kids know that they that they'll be happy if they if there's some money left over for them uh because between our lifestyle and you know the amount of money that i spend on service uh that's really what brings to you know incredible amounts of joy in my life and my experiential life is you know oriented around travel i really enjoy traveling and so i go to different cities different countries all over the world i like to go to old places but more new places and i circle around an event so if there is a social impact investing conference then i will go to that and then i'll have a side journey along with it i like to mm. go on solo travel trips also so every year i take three or four days completely by myself and i will drive and so i drive from let's say for example 
the last time I uh, drove from San Francisco to Los Angeles, for example, over a period of three days, stopping where I want, uh, you know, meditating where I want, drinking a glass of red wine where I want, and chatting with people mm-hmm. whomever I met during those three days. But it was a solo journey, and, and I, I just love doing that. And I've done that almost every year. And, and so these are the types of experiential travel. Some of which have a specific agenda, but in many cases there is no agenda. And uh, I will travel either by myself or just Mona and me. Some trips are with two or three couples. And then we have trips once a year with potentially 20, 30 people who go on a group. Uh, but these are all people who are already known. So it's not a, uh, a, a, a tour which is where you sign up just and there are all other unknown people in that tour. Uh, we enjoy these other tours where we, you know, go out with people that we really enjoy and they're like-minded people. And so that's really my uh, my experiential journey, Suzanne. You mentioned at, that you you're, have concern, a little concern that uh, we're moving towards an asset light wealth management process or maybe we'll be lacking in assets if we go with the mindset, you know, not getting enough assets to travel through. From your perspective with the younger generations coming up, I was just at a conference and they were saying they can't even in the entertainment field, uh, they can't even understand what the Y and Z generation wants. They don't even really can't grapple with it yet. So from from your interviews, but also from your observations and travels, where do you see th- that this is headed? Uh, because it's possible everyone could just spend their money on experience and not aggregating assets, and then all of a sudden these millennials are in their senior years and there's no one there to care for them. Actually, this is exactly the reason why they are uh, you know, spending money and not holding money because all of us, including Eckhart Tolle, says live in the now. And so they are living in the now. They are not busy mm-hmm. accumulating and spending their time now to look after the way, way out their future. They are confident enough that they are smart, that there will be enough opportunities and there will be food on the table and shelter on their head. But they're not busy like we were during our time. This is the baby boomer thinking that you need to hoard a whole bunch of money to live happily ever after. They are living happily after now, not mm. planning on a life to live happily ever after in the future. So that's really the difference. And millennials are definitely, in that sense, slightly higher risk takers. Uh, most people think that you know they're lazy, but actually they are not. They're looking for purpose, and they're out there with a lot, lot less burden on their minds, other than the social pressures. So social pressure shifts from time to time, right? So the hippie generation and then uh, the, the baby boomers, you know, high-flying guys. And then, so as, as the energy shifts, now their burdens are different. It's not money. And mm. so that, that's really, really the shift that I'm seeing. So maybe the exes will be propelled with a purpose to take care of their elders. Um, <laughs> maybe that's what it'll be. Yeah, and also, uh, the, 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 the entertainment part, Suzanne, that you mentioned, right? So that's also shifting. We used to just love watching a three-hour movie on 70mm screens you know, in theater and, uh, you know, watch television subsequently. And, and now you just see the eyeballs on television. They're just dramatically shifting downwards. 
and people are starting to watch on streaming platforms like Netflix. But now the next piece that we are seeing is that there is shift to shorter formats and and mm. movies, right? Documentaries like Inside Bill's Brain and stuff like that, and genius. And people want to see those types of meaningful documentaries, but short versions of it are even more popular. So short format content really is the in thing. And yes, of course, that's because of the mobile technology. These kids don't right. even know what life was before a mobile phone, and so their attention span is different and so we keep complaining that they're constantly in the digital and the mobile world but we used to be on our personal computers for hours and hours right. and hours and that was okay but now instead of being on a personal computer checking mail for 2 hours and replying to all the mail they are doing it every 10 minutes and either as a message or a text message or a whatsapp message or a instagram or facebook or whatever it is every 10 minutes in some cases even faster than that they're constantly up to date they're not mm. lagging behind saying tomorrow i will reply to today's message or tonight i will reply they're online on board all the time now mm. it's a shift we as baby boomers are uncomfortable with it but it is what it is right so when the right. television came people were restricted from watching television they say oh that's so bad for you and or specifically esports right People say, "Oh, esports gaming! Oh, kids are staying online on the gaming for hours and hours, and that's not healthy." Fast forward, actually, those are the kids that are succeeding in today's world because their dexterity and just their speed of, of you know, eyeball coordination, eyes to hand coordination, is extremely high. But there are gamers who are making millions of dollars now at the age of 16 and 17 and 18, and then suddenly, yeah. you know, people are shifting to say, "Oh, maybe it's okay, you know, to, to play games." So, being judgmental based on old systems and old values and old paradigms, I think uh, yes, not everything that is new is good, but we need to be open-minded. That uh, you know, it just sorts itself out, right? And some of the things sort of are yeah, not really, really good dies, and and some of the things stays, and many things are there to stay because this generation Z and millennials they have just decided that this is what they're going to do. uh how are you going to collectively you know shift that energy so you just got to live with it and figure out so if you can't win them you got to join them absolutely well the constant is change so we adapt <laughs> right how would you define the word wealth i think uh, plain and simple you know so many different uh, perspectives from this book and 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 really you know you and all the listeners need to read the, that part of the book about wealth in in the book what shall we do with all this money but it is defined in different ways by different people for me uh because i came from a very humble beginning my middle class value system has not shifted though because of that one exit in a startup i became affluent uh but What does affluent mean to different people is different things, right? So for some it's five billion dollars, some it's hundred billion dollars, and it's still not enough. So for me, wealth is something that I need to have independence, financial independence, right? And mm. it is important how much is enough that you just you should know. So financial independence to someone means I need to have a a, a Rolls Royce and I need to have my own private jet. To someone, financial independence is a Can I put food on the table? Can I send my kids to good school wherever they want to go to school? So that means that even if they want to go to Stanford as against UC, uh, then I should be able to afford that. That is 
financial independence of people like me, where education is a huge thing, right? From where I came up, from nothing, uh, thanks to all the amazing education that you know I was able to succeed. And so, uh, really, wealth is there as a as a security uh, you know blanket, but beyond that, I think it's really meant to me. It's not how much money you have; it's how you utilize that wealth. Really, is who I call a wealthy person. Hmm. And with with that being said, when you look into service with all your history, and you know, you mentioned like, oh, people—it's great if people write checks. But from being in action and service, and then when you see people um, giving currency. Can you share a little bit about the difference, a different experience from that? And even if an organization is more currency-centric, thinking that they need X amount of dollars to do X, Y, and Z, versus an organization that you know well that's service-oriented with a deep level of trust, um, that things will come in. If you can share those different mindsets and how you your mindset has shifted maybe from even the time you got involved with service space yes uh, first first and foremost very important uh, feedback after having seen this over the last 15 years is that all of the above is good so if somebody wants to be part of a rotary system rotary club system and they once a week they go to have lunch and they see the good causes and write a check and walk away and all they're doing is writing checks. I think it's good. Doing something is better than not doing anything. The next level, of course, is putting your own time and energy and effort into that project. And then the third is, of course, a combination of both, where you have self-directed philanthropy so that you're creating uh, an organization and running it and directing it to a specific cause that resonates with you where you're putting your own money also to begin with. And then there might be other people that bring money in. So when I see a full-time volunteer organization or service space, uh, their mission, their focus is slightly different than a organization like Akhanda Jyoti Eye Hospital where to do 65,000 cataract operations every year, you need to have a hospital they have 24 surgeons, they have 400 people working, and you need to pay salaries to them. So money has to be introduced into the equation. You can't be oblivious of this and, and have a hope and optimism as a business plan. So even though it is a non-profit, uh, you have to worry about cash flow and make sure that it's adequately funded. And so, you know, every person has to find their own thread to say, uh, I'm just going to give my time, that's one, or just give my money, or hopefully do both. And not everyone needs to create and start their own NGO, non-profit organization, uh, and do self-directed philanthropy. In many cases, you have a guy like Bill Gates who sets up Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and has his own self-directed philanthropy. And then you get a person like Warren Buffett who says, hey, I don't need to recreate. This guy knows better than me and is really deeply into it, and I trust him, so I'm going to give my money to Bill. And so that combination works also. So a lot of people don't want to set up and manage because it's just shifting, again, from one company, which is a for-profit company, to a non-profit company, but you go through the same day-to-day uh, -day operating issues, and many people don't want that. And, and so they write checks and donate their money 
to good organizations at the trust so i think the one thing that i will say that i have learned from service based community and people like nepon is that you until you in, introduce your own personal energy and time and effort and and mind space into a non-profit world or service world uh, the inner transformation shift doesn't really happen that dramatically uh, so while it's not bad to just write a check but if you go to the next level and introduce your own personal time effort energy money i think you would have a much better experience in an inner transformation so i i would suggest recommend to people to find that one um, you know one one non-profit or 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 vertical sector whether it's education women empowerment whether it's water cleaning you know clean water you know what climate right so there is there's so many so many different vertical sectors and organizations find one and introduce yourself into that and 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 magic will happen hmm and can you share a little bit about that dichotomy that not everyone needs to run their own ngo or nonprofit organization cuz I, i get this a lot where people be you know they they're looking for their own self-worth so they do think about being of service to others but sometimes they think really big so can you share a little bit about keeping service small yeah. and the value of that yeah so again uh one of them is the size so if somebody exits from a startup and suddenly comes into a few hundred million dollars or a billion dollars uh clearly uh they are in a different position then someone who's got a paycheck coming then they'll take a certain portion of it and give it to united way for example on a matching grant and so because you know if you've got a you know few hundred or few thousand dollars then to start your own organization and run the operating funds are not sufficient but for those people who have large amounts of funds if you get involved in starting and running your own operations and hiring people managing the impact and the cash flows is really hard work and there are people who want to do that because there are people who exit at a very young age and so you know someone who exits at the age of 40 and and comes into a few hundred million dollars that person is not going to retire for the rest of his life or her life and so they can either set up another company as a startup and keep going and keep building businesses for money but many of them shift to this piece where they say okay i'm going to start a social enterprise either for profit doing good or a non-profit and dedicate their money and time and hire and then bring on bring their friends into that fold um we've seen that happen you know a, a lot uh so i think this dichotomy really is is to the extent that there are some people who have the wherewithal and they feel that they have the energy and the will and smartness right so they are people who have successfully operated businesses and they want to bring their business philosophy into the non-profit world and so we've seen many people who do that the one danger is that if everyone starts doing that then there are small islands right of work which is being done and unless they all come together in a consortium then it gets distributed diluted so to a sense to a, to a small degree i'm glad that not everybody wants to do self-directed philanthropy there are people who say what you guys are doing a great job i want to contribute my money to your organization but i want to come and help your organization so again 
coming back to the cataract eye hospital in Bihar, uh, you know, I could start my own hospital. But here is a fantastic hospital that's running for the last 10 years doing excellent work. And I did a little bit of due diligence before I jumped in. But now my money and my time and my energy all goes to this person within the who set up this particular eye hospital. And so I find comfort in that. Uh, and I get time affluence to go do my other things and my experiential travel. Uh, and I don't get bogged down in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, you know, in a certain sense. And Mithunjaya just loves it because he's been doing this for the last 10 years. He's younger and a lot more energy. So, yeah, so it, it does work out when you, when you have, you know, and, and there, there's no right or wrong. So there are people who are very passionate about a certain vertical sector or a particular, particular cause in a particular region, and they will start their own companies and organizations, non-profit. And that's great. I think there's nothing wrong with it. So, yeah. And do you foresee, especially with... Um how you were talking earlier about the millennials liking cause-based businesses, cause-based activities, things that like do good at the same time. Like they'd rather buy this loaf of bread if it does something else or this pair of shoes if it does something else. Do you see these worlds like merging where they used to be so separate um, so that they could be more, have a better economic sustainability and regenerative pattern? So I will um, only talk about the affluent millennials to begin with. And so affluent millennials do live a good life, but it's asset life. So that's the only difference. So it's not like they don't want to travel by business class if they can afford it. It's not that they don't want to go to a one-star Michelin restaurant. It's not like they don't want to go on vacation, skiing, ski resort vacations with their friends. They want to do that. So I think that the only difference is that this accumulation of wealth, you know, that philosophy is shifting. But other than that, I think the millennials, uh, it's not like they want to give away all their money or they want to be just so altruistic that they don't want to look after themselves and they only want to serve by giving away all the money. Uh, in their lifetime, they might give away all their money, but each passing year, they want to experience a good life, a good quality of life, a good standard of living. And 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 to, to some extent, yes, they will buy some shoes. So there's you know, this whole fad about these new wave shoes, uh, sneakers uh, that they're buying, and and they'll spend you know five hundred dollars on a on a pair of shoes. But it's different than buying vacation homes after vacation homes and yachts after yachts and buying planes, right? So it's not right. You know, at that level, the, the level of materialism has shifted to where. They might buy, you know, a pair of shoes, or they buy a belt, or, or a handbag, and and they're happy with that. So it's not, uh, it's, it's a mix of material and experiential spending. That's what the affluent mm-hmm. millennials are doing. And well, and so do you see the the like? I guess what I was getting at is that the nonprofit world, and let's say those five hundred dollars shoe company is doing something good, that those worlds will start to converge more and more to meet the needs of and the desires of the younger generations coming forward, meaning that their consumerism is based, their choices sometimes will be based on what, it, what their pro, that product does, not just the, the label or the beauty of it, but that it actually maybe pays for someone's eye surgery in India or 
that it gives a, dr- drills a well in a country where the, they, maybe they don't have the funds to do that. Yes, I am completely in agreement with you, Suzanne, that this is shifting. Uh, the kids, millennials, are aware of which company is socially responsible a lot more during, than during our time. Uh, we just wanted a good product and we didn't really go backwards to find out where it's coming from and who's making it and what is in their balance sheet. Whereas today, the word gets out that the, the social media is so powerful that if someone is not doing a good or is, you know, if, if they're, they're anti some particular topic, then the wave just goes and that particular company will have to succumb and stop doing those things. And, and change their ways, otherwise their sales will dramatically go down. On the other hand, a company that continuously keeps showing purpose, definitely going forward in the future, will have to be for, for increasing their sales because the kids are interested to make sure that they buy products or services from companies and organizations which have good practices and healthy practices across the board, whether it's gender equity or whether it's their CSR, corporate social responsibility, uh, and there is actually a new startup that I just heard about, which actually dissects the balance sheet of these large organizations and takes out this carbon footprints and things like that from it. And, on, and if there are evil things that are there on the balance sheet, they pull that out. And so they create a new balance sheet, which shows how this company is doing minus all these things that are not so good. And so it basically strips things out of these balance sheets. And now when that happens, and there are more and more people who start looking at that as a benchmark, uh, it's just going to dramatically change the decision makings at board level going forward in the future. So, uh, mm. yes, absolutely. It is, I mean, people are looking at, you know, who's making these products and what are the strategies and the philosophies of those companies that are making these products and services. I'm, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions because I know I've held you for a while. <laughs> but I, how do you see India when you have this wealth, like you went this, through this perspective of how India is actually poised to be a change agent? And do you feel the those that will uh, be carrying the baton of this wealth are ready to be that change agent? I think it's a, a very difficult uh, question, Suzanne. It's a very complex country, and uh, the wealth is distributed amongst a very few percentages, and, and the guys at the completely upper echelon, they are doing uh, good and social services, but it's really not enough and not at the percentage and the levels, in my personal opinion. You know, in, in terms of distribution of wealth, it's really skewed. And what I see is that there are other ways in which the affluent people in India are doing good, which I'm not so sure is getting measured. So, you know, so for example, there is full-time help, right? That's the Asian culture where they have full-time help, they have drivers, they have gardeners. And these affluent people usually look after those people. They will send their kids to school, they pay for their kids' college, they pay for their mm-hmm. health care, etc., which does not get captured because they are only capturing the things that goes to the tax net, right? So if you're donating $100,000 and you get a 501c3 break, the equivalent of that in India, uh, then that gets captured. But they don't, you know, in the, in the dollars and cents, it doesn't get captured where 
she's you know getting giving education to six kids but the per capita giving could really do a lot more in my personal opinion and united states has done an absolutely fantastic job in the sense how the government has organized the whole charitable institute tax regime and also the generosity of people people are just incredibly generous across the board and it's not just giving money for america but it's giving money for all over the world uh, which is a different and i think in the indian uh, it's really started from survival instinct and so that survival instinct basically just you know makes people hoard their money and so that generosity while it is improving i think a lot more needs to get be done but also the government policies on giving and taxations and all of that is really needs a lot of improvement uh, there is a chapter in my book by a successful lawyer his name is navneet chub c h u g h chub llp is a very large law firm and accounting firm in in california and if you read that chapter which is the longest chapter in the entire book uh, he nails it as to you know the same exact question that i asked saying hey what's happening how come the americans are you know the most generous per capita givers in the world so please mm. read that chapter i will i'm excited to read this book so uh circling um back to that word you started with compassion and how after going through this this journey of um writing and putting this book together how from a spiritual sense um have you shifted with that word compassion because you knew it before you did that past life progression um but how has that deepened for you and then how does it move into action on your day-to-day uh life in your day-to-day life yeah I think uh, the one thing that jumps out is minimalist right so because I'm fortunate that I have middle class values and I grew up in a humble beginning and because I discovered compassion along the way that combination you know helps me keep my life minimalist now I do travel and I do enjoy the vacations and all that the minimalism is really relative to different people but I think that's one shift and the other is that uh my outcome measurement mindset is shifting to journey right so before in the corporate world you you question everything and you go through dollars and cents and the due diligence is so harsh and sharp and that is shifting to journey and so there's a lot more trust there's a lot more saying okay fine you know there's a certain percentage which might get leaked or inefficient but it's okay right as long as mm. some level of good is happening it's okay to part with your money and so and and the journey of meeting people is a lot more fun to me uh than just doing in in a way that an annual report comes out of it where you measure saying 16% growth and we did this x amount of this and y amount of that it's important to measure outcome but the journey of meeting people and sharing life's uh, you know perspectives uh is is far more joy for me and especially with people compassionate people it's really how uh you know people are like minded they attract each other and i'm just so fortunate that worldwide you know there are many people like tepon and i've bonded with him for god knows how many years now and people like you suzanne <laughs> and i i enjoy more and more so there is a shift there also where 
I just won't go to every cocktail party and dinners which have like 30, 40, 50 people because after a while that really doesn't work that well to just go around saying, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing? Etc. <laughs> how's Apple stock yeah. doing today? And how's the real estate price shifting in Singapore? It doesn't do much for me. You know, mm-hmm. two couples having dinners together or if I come to Los Angeles and you get me a glass of wine and sit with me for a few hours, I'd love doing that. Was just throwing a party for me and inviting 30 people. That doesn't do much for right. me. So that mm. shift is just uh, you know very 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 important. Uh, so compassion, yeah. yes, I think uh, compassion translating into action, I think requires that mindset. It requires willpower, but more than anything, it requires you to slice time. You know, many people say, "Oh, I just don't have the time. Uh, I can't afford it." They say. But I think affording is also all relative, right? I mean, like I said, like, I mean, taking out two hours to do service every week, for example. I mean, come on, how can someone not have two hours? How busy are you, right? And so, to that extent, I'd say that you know, take that compassion, and when you start meeting those people and immerse yourself into a uh, organization uh, which is giving service, you will just see that it is regenerative, and so you. Feel more and more that that's what I want to do. It's almost addicting to a point where it's just like meditation, right? I mean, if you don't meditate for a day, you feel aha, something is lacking. And if you don't serve that week, you will find that something inside you is telling you that hey, you know, let's go, let's go back there. So yeah, compassion is very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I, I believe it's the remedy uh, to all our healing. <laughs> so you know. If we just get out there and serve, uh, Jayesh, I could talk to you as always for hours on end. And I want to leave the listeners with uh, excitement to read the book. And we'll put all the links below. And do you anticipate now that you did this, you're going to write another book? <laughs> I felt like maybe oh, we were. I, I have absolutely no preconceived notions of them. Thank you so much, but I have no preconceived notions. I think it's. <laughs> One day at a time, one moment at a time. Yeah. And so we'll see where life uh, life takes me. But uh, I, I do believe that you know there are more topics in life. As you'll see towards the end of my book, I do mention uh, you know you know what are the three three stages of life and and time uh, affluence is the next. So wealth affluence is the first one, and then time affluence is the second, and mind affluence is the third. So each one of that could mm. be a book. Absolutely. Well, we're you know all of us that have crossed your path are truly blessed, and um, you have the great fortune of creating a lot of wealth for many in many different ways. So, I thank you for being that for many of us here on planet Earth, and I thank you for taking the time today. Thank you so much, Suzanne, for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Once again, I want to thank Jayesh for being here today and inspiring us all to serve, embrace compassion, and maybe shift our lens on what wealth is for each and every one of us. The link to purchase the book is below. In addition, there's a link to see all the people he interviewed. You can purchase it in India and out at Amazon.com, where they ship additional places worldwide. And to be noted, that all proceeds for these sa- the sales of this book are going to go to Akhan Jyoti Eye Hospital in India, and that's one of the nonprofits he mentioned in this interview. 
So this is a service project, in addition, uh, an act of service to us all that take the time to read it. Until next time, this is she signing out with a full heart, a soft gaze, a deep bow, and a namaste. Be simply.